Hello and welcome to another episode of Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. The Buy Side is our series of conversations about sport and sponsorship with brand marketers. Our guest today is Kevin McNair, Marketing Director of KP Snacks, whose career includes previous senior marketing roles at Unilever and PepsiCo. We discuss the high-profile sponsorship of The 100, ECB's controversial short-format cricket competition, and we dissect the work of Professor Byron Sharp and the Ehrenberg Bass Institute for Marketing Science, which shapes the decision-making process at KP Snacks and other major marketing-led companies. The other voice you'll hear is the Byside's co-host, Sean Watling, CEO of Red Mandarin, the strategic sponsorship consultancy. Unofficial Partner is the leading podcast for the business of sport, a mix of entertaining and thought-provoking conversations with a who's who of the global industry. To join our community of listeners, sign up to the weekly Unofficial Partner newsletter and follow us on Twitter. I'm a massive KP Snacks fan. <laughs> you'll, you'll be thrilled you'll to hear. To give me your address. I'll send some product over to you. No, that, that is the absolute last thing I need. But So we're going to talk about the 100. I want to talk about the 100. And, but beyond, can we just pause on that for a, for a moment? Can you just sort of position sport and sponsorship within the broader thing? I just want to talk about the marketplace that you're in. Mm more broadly before we get to the specifics about sport and sponsorship which obviously is the nuts and bolts of the conversation but just give us, give us an idea of of the you know the day-to-day conversations within the company yes yeah, so from a from a commercial perspective and what i mean by that is marketing and sales uh, primar- primarily is that our goal ultimately is to reach as many category buyers as we possibly can, which is based on the principles of Ehrenberg Bass around mental and physical availability, which simply put is how do you get your brands top of mind and then easy to find? That ultimately in simplistic terms is what drives the marketing and sales teams at KP Snacks. In order to do that, you need to make sure that your brands are available in as many shops as you possibly can get them into. And then within those shops, you need to make sure that they're easy to find within those shops. Uh, But before people go into those shops, you want to make sure that your brands are in that consideration space for those buyers. Now in our category, we're quite lucky, lucky really. 99% of the population buy at least one snack a year. About 75% of the population buy one snack every 12 weeks. So therefore, our opportunity is to try and talk to as many of those people as possible every 12 weeks. And then when you look at sponsorship as a way of doing that, you then need to see, okay, what is that event doing? Who's it appealing to and over what time frame? And then I guess the other things that are for a consideration for a business like ours, given we've got quite a broad portfolio of brands, is are there ways in which you can get a kind of better bang for your buck, so to speak, in terms of having a breadth of the brands involved in the partnership? 
Hence why when we started to talk to the England Cricket Board about the 100 a few years ago, the fact that they had eight teams and we had seven or eight invest brands allows, allowed us actually a perfect fit from that perspective to kind of have a brand associate themselves with a different team. Versus, say, maybe other sports sponsorships or other sponsorships in general where there might only be the opportunity to maybe choose one of those brands because we don't have a corporate brand like, let's say, Mars. I know they've got a number yeah. of brands underneath, but the consume, when you say Mars to a consumer, it means something. KP Snacks is just a holding place for all of the brands. But if you say KP Snacks, a lot of the time people default to just our nuts business. And as a business, we're more than just nuts. It was interesting... You mentioned the, the I mean, it's Byron Sharp's work, yes. isn't it? And, and I, in my sojourn, as I call it, into the advertising world, it was really interesting. I, on every planner's desk, you saw, you know, how brands grow and, and whatever the follow-up was. It took me by surprise how influential that work is. And we used to have clients, you know, big, so it was beer, we had beer, you know, Molson Coors and, and various other and they were very, very, you know, that was a very central part. Very quickly, you got to mental availability, physical availability, those things. What are the implications of going that route, do you think, in terms of, of you just, I suppose it means that you've just got, in terms of marketing spend, hmm. mental availability means you just need to be always on, presumably. Is that is that one implication? Of yeah, it? pretty much. Um, so, yeah, from a mental availability perspective, it's it's making sure that, uh, you are as much as you can be always on or at the time when people are thinking about either having a snack in real time or thinking about what they need for a future occasion. For example, people are coming round to socialise. You want to make sure that your brand or brands are top of mind for those occasions. And therefore, there's two things really. There's the maximizing the reach as much as you possibly can so how do you get your brands into that space against as many of the population as possible but then making sure that there's a clear link between maybe an occasion and the brand you want to place within that occasion but also it's about recency so to your point around always on is then making sure that yeah, as much as you possibly can within the budgets that you have, that you're able to do that. And again, sponsorship, sports sponsorship, some of them maybe don't do that. So, for example, it might be a one-off event. So I've had experience mm. of working on the London Marathon, for example, with Flora when I was at Unilever. That's one day. And so you're relying on your exposure for one day. So therefore... You then need to think about a load of other activity beyond that. The benefit of our involvement with the 100 is it's really is over two months over the summer. So actually, it allows us to have our brands pretty much always on over an eight week period. And on top of that, with Sky and BBC getting involved and over half a million people going to the grounds for each game. It gives us the opportunity over the summer period to get immense reach and also frequency in terms of messaging. 
And that's why it fits really well. And to go back to your kind of original question around the Ehrenberg, Bass, Byron, Sharp model, it brings a bit more science into marketing as well as the arts. And I'll talk a bit yeah. about the art later on. Now, the additional thing that comes for us with this sponsorship is the community aspect. And the England Cricket Board from day one wanted to get a different group of people interested in cricket. So in that typical marketing space, and I think a few people who were involved in the running of the 100 were actually ex-commercial marketeers and salespeople, so they were able to think about how do I build this brand? They were able to identify a group of people that either had a barrier to cricket but there was some degree of interest if the package or the proposition was right. And by bringing in that group of people, we were also interested in that approach because it was slightly younger, more mainstream. And then the second piece was they wanted to, obviously the England Cricket Board are a non-for-profit and therefore all of that was going back into grassroots. And for us as a responsible business we wanted to do the right thing and part of the sponsorship was about how could we give something back to communities and this year we were pleased to announce that we were investing in making pitches available to communities and so as of today 35 pitches have been built in less affluent areas that give them the opportunity to get involved in sport. And therefore, for us, it was one of the other aspects that we want to do. Because ultimately, over the course of the five-year uh, programme that we've initially signed up to, we want to give about a million people the opportunity to get active through sport and therefore cricket. So if that's where you're starting, if you're starting from the mental availability, Byron Sharp, model if that's the world view it's a question for all of us in terms of what the implications of that for people on the sales side of the sponsorship equation so if you're a rights holder what is it and if you are an event rights holder that's a minus in your column it's how it feels like or you're going to have to do some something in in the the proposal or in the in the offer that meets your objectives. If that's what you're trying to exactly. do, there needs to be something that has to happen, doesn't it? I can see that, you know, teams, football shirts is a different conversation. Individuals is a different conversation. But when you again get to event rights holders, I think that's quite an interesting yeah. challenge. What, I'll throw well, that I, out there. I get approached every single week. So the moment that we signed the partnership, the flood of people that approach you from various organisations, event right to your point, rights holders, etc. You get a flood of people just going, we want, we want to talk to you. My advice to them is to go back and go, okay, what do we have as a property, which they're very clear on? Why am I targeting this company or, or brand or group of brands? What do I understand about those brands? And how can my event or team, what platform, whatever it is, support the objectives of that business or, or brands? 
rather than just a cold call of, you know, that in the past, I would say there was probably more kind of ego led approach from our perspective around putting logos on things. To your point around then the link between those event holders and then the principles of mental availability is putting those together and seeing how those events can actually help against our objectives. Now, there are a load of sports out there that are always on. So take the Premier League, for example. Football is now what, or Premier League is August until May. That's an amazing opportunity. But how many people in the country look at that every single week? Question one. The second question then is, there are a plethora of brands that get involved. So do you just get lost in the noise? And then where are you placed in order to get that mental availability going? So you just talked about shirt sponsorship. Yeah, I'm a, I think shirt sponsorship clearly is one of those key ways of doing it because you're watching the players. That's what you're seeing. And therefore, in every frame, you're going to have your brand involved versus, say, perimeter advertising. I'll be honest with you, as a viewer, I'm not watching the perimeter advertising. I'm watching mm. the activity, the men or women who are playing their sport, you're watching that. And so that's where you need to think about the placement of your brands and where you want to be involved. Mm. Can I jump in with a, another couple mm. of kind of builds on that? Because uh, I think the whole, for me, the old Ehrenberg Bass thing and Byron Sharp is, is generally a good thing for sponsorship in terms of sponsorship being able to deliver against many of the criteria very often. But one point which is intrinsic to mental availability is salience and distinctiveness, which is a key kind of tenet of Sharp. I'd be interested, Kevin, in your thoughts on how that plays out for the 100. And I think there's probably not an easy answer there, but also how do you balance the always on with maintaining salience and distinctiveness, which is also very relevant for the rights holder question? Yeah, I mean, that. Byron Sharp, you're right about distinctiveness, plus also about how you utilise your brand distinctive assets. And one of the key brand distinctive assets is your logo. And therefore, putting your logo within those properties is also important. The distinctiveness element for me as well is about then making sure that you're able to activate things through the line. So when people are going into shops, and may have already seen that activity, you're making some connections of, oh yeah, the 100, I really like that event. We haven't talked yet about engaging emotionally. So what feelings does that give? Oh yeah, it's fun. It brings people together. Snacks is about fun and bringing people together. So those things that are kind of subliminal kind of point also help that you can't really measure scientifically although maybe byron would suggest you possibly can but those are the things that we're looking to to connect so i think there's also about a brand fit with some of those activities um yeah does it if you're wanting to make people smile if you're wanting what is what's the emotional connection you're wanting to create with the brands is another thing i would recommend to any brand holder to think about when they're uh, getting involved in sponsorship. Do you think that kind of remains a, a priority in the sense that what the Ehrenberg Bass and Brian Sharp talk about 
is quite often the, the emphasis is on visibility of logo. It's far less on the subtleties of brand alignment. Yeah. Uh, and think you're within the kind of the, the LinkedIn, within the trade media, there's endless discussions around how does brand, what's the actual role of kind of the emotional content of brand in the Byron Sharp worldview. How do you reconcile or how do you balance that, the, the value of brand alignment versus the, just the value of just sheer exposure? Yeah, I think it's, it's ultimately about looking at the role that different channels can play in that. So there's going to be times where you just want to remind people that your brand exists. So that is where it's just about reach, recency, i.e. number of weeks on air. That is where sponsorship and, and logos come in. Then as you go through and look at other channels, how do you create a deeper emotional engagement on your brands? And hence why we were really, really keen to work with the England Cricket Board on looking at making some investments in communities. Now that wasn't just about the consumer at that case, it was also about the shop owner and some of our retail partners in terms of helping support communities. So even if you think about the individual shopkeeper who owns an independent store in Birmingham, for example, and they want to be involved in communities, but then you talk to co-op, Asda, Tesco, Sainsbury's, uh, Waitrose, Morrison's, they're all involved in some shape or form in communities. And that also aligned what we wanted to do with what they're wanting to do. And so we start to bring to life some of the activation around it to make it something more meaningful than just putting a logo on a shirt. I guess there's a question <clears throat> I've got, which is, this is, you know, the audience of this podcast and the, the, we talk a lot about sport and sponsorship, obviously. And quite often when I hear people evangelize, you know, the sport sponsorship, it's, it's saying, well, it's a, you know, it can do every job. I, I, I'm sure that's true, but I'm wondering what the limits of it are and what other, you mentioned the other channels, all the jobs that you need doing, how many do you trust sponsorship and sport sponsorship to do? And what, what are the, what is it, what is it good at? And then the other bit to it is what are the limits of its mm. role? It's, Depending on the property that you're partnering with, um, so there's a caveat there. But the for me, the thing it can do is just get your brand out there so that based on those measures of mental availability, you're just driving saliency. What you choose to do then around it and the level of investment and the resource that you want to put into other things to make it have a deeper connection with consumers. And it might be a certain group of those in terms of fans. It might be more broadly in terms of what you're trying to do. That then needs to be looked at in against all other channels that you've got at your disposal to reach as many people as you possibly can. I know that seems quite vague, but what I'm really trying to say is it will all depend on the property and your overall brand and business objectives. For us, there were two things. There was ultimately, how do we get more brand visibility across our portfolio of brands? 
as efficiently as possible. And this was a great way to do it. It gave us great media value over a period of time across the summer. And then the other thing it's allowed us to do is provide a platform from a community perspective where we wanted to do something as a responsible marketing uh, led organization by giving something back through the investment of pitches. So we had a legacy beyond just the sponsorship. Can I move us on to the hundred? Because first in, into bat in terms of a sponsor, and did it feel like a gamble? Because it's notoriously hard for rights holders to secure sponsors for concepts. Yeah, was it a gamble is a, is a very good question. I think it was a calculated risk. There's always going to be risk in terms of working with something new. Um, what gave us uh, a lot of hope was a number of things. One is I was really impressed with the team at the 100. As I'd said earlier, they were ex-marketeers and commercial people from from my world. So both Sanjay Patel and Rob Calder, for example, had worked for Diageo. So they knew what it took to build brands. They'd done a huge amount of work to get to a stage where they were ready to launch a brand property in the 100 and showed us the research that they had done and the amount of work they'd done. So we were sitting there. I still remember the room I was sitting in and the day I was sitting with them to talk to them about it. So that that was one piece, which is we felt that there was something in this. The second piece was Sky and BBC were involved and therefore they were really keen on finding a way of bringing that event to life with their viewers. So when I started to think about reach and the population being exposed to this, I started to think about, okay, well, at least in year one, we know that we're going to get something here. But the yeah, of course, there was there was risk because we didn't know how successful it was going to be. So in, again, using marketing terms, I think everything was set up to generate trial, but we were going to wait and see whether it was going to repeat. So then we just build into the contract and the working relationship to deal with that element of risk. But we were pretty confident as they started to share their plans and started to talk to Sky and the BBC about how they were going to bring it to life. It ended up being, yes, a, a calculated risk, but we felt that it, if it was going to work, it was really going to work. One of the, the standout successes of the 100, I think, has been the women's side. And that's that's been the bit that has been probably, I think, the most exciting, interesting and, you know, the part that I guess there's a question here about that relates that audience and what we know about the audience for the women's game compared to the men's game. I can make assumptions about the men's game and you're right, the 100 was seeking a new audience. It needed to be younger. All of the cliches around cricket, some of which are true, some of which aren't. But that audience, how, what do we know about them? But also how does that match the snacks 
market is the snacks market gendered in that way or is it is it is there something else going on there so i'll ask the, i'll answer the first the last question first the snacks market is pretty broad you've got all walks of life buying snacks for a variety of occasions whether it's to accompany a sandwich at lunch all the way through to pick me ups during the day when you're kind of in, in between meals through to then kind of having a little treat at the end of the day when you're just kind of wanting to relax and, and unwind. So it's, it's pretty broad from that perspective. The women's game and the, the aspect of the hundred and building a plan for both men and women was really important for us. We'd been talking to some rights holders prior to working with the hundred where it was either one or the other. It was either that the, they only had a men's side or we've got the women's property and we would like you to get involved in that. And both didn't work for a variety of different reasons. One was we, we want to have uh, access for all and therefore we were looking for a property that was looking at both the men's and women's game. And I think the, the other thing for us was we wanted to make sure that we we reached as many people as possible and therefore the men's and women's did that really really well interestingly the england cricket board and the hundred team talked at a very early stage about combining both men's and women's on the same day so as they call it the double header and again that was really interesting for us because you're bringing all of these people in to demonstrate how great the women's game can be so that all of a sudden, and what you're seeing now year on year, is people are coming to the grounds earlier and earlier and earlier because they want to see both because actually the entertainment is coming from both the men and women's game. And I would argue that actually a lot of the time, some of the women's games are more entertaining and closer than the men's games. And for the families that are going, and 30% of the tickets being bought are through women, that's really interesting. And again, against the objective set of bringing more people into sport and the game, that's clearly doing the right thing. And it's also helping against our objectives as well. I get confused with this a bit. We've done quite a lot around women's football. We've done it. We did an event at the zone a few weeks ago. And so there are two stories. One is that they're different audiences. So the women's sport audience is different. It's younger. It's more family based. It's 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 just not your traditional men's football or cricket audience. When you then then put them together in a ground, I'm just trying to work out what what that means and whether or not actually those two things conflict in some way. Because actually, I can see the benefits of double headers, but in football, those those are extreme. We were, we had Sarah Batters on here mm. in Southampton, and she was saying that you know it's about sixty percent of the Saints women audience is is new to football, never been to the ground before. I don't quite know what the implications are of putting them all in the sa- in the ground at the same time. I, don't, I, I go around in circles. There appears to be a bit of a inconsistency there. Yeah, I mean, so I'll, let me talk about it as a viewer first, rather than a kind of marketeer that's involved in 
in this field. I think that's slow. In terms of the women's game, I think that's changing. So I was on holiday when the Women's World Cup football was on. And the amount of people that went to the bar area to watch the both the semi-final and the final was a great cross-section of the population. And I would argue that a few years ago, that probably wasn't the case. You would probably find the kind of mums, women, the kids will have probably watched that game, but it was all the families were watching it. And I thought that was absolutely fantastic. It demonstrates how well the women's game has developed. And what's allowed for that to happen, the investment that's gone in to allow women to become professionals to get the training and support that they need in order for the quality to, to increase. So that's me as a viewer, what I'm seeing. And the, the quality of the, the sport is phenomenal. And the entertainment factor, I think, also is, is phenomenal. I think the on the double headers, yeah, I mean, you can go both ways. You could argue that at some point you might want to decouple them. So it might have been a good initial trial driver to go you know what you might not have been interested but now you've come along and you might have got there early because you were actually going to watch the men's game but you've seen the women's game you might kind of go wow that's a surprise i really like that and therefore over time you might want to do the opposite and then break away because you're actually going to appeal to a larger group of people so yeah, I I don't know. You'll need to talk to the kind of those that are in in that kind of space. But for me, what I really enjoyed was this year is seeing more and more people come earlier because they knew they were going to get great entertainment across two platforms, both the women's and the men's. I'm moving away from women's cricket, but a question that comes up quite frequently, and that is the the impact on a sponsor of a rights holder's behaviour. It came up a lot around Qatar, for example. Mm. Obviously, you've been in, is it, is it, I think it's the end of your, is it the end of your second season uh, or third, third season? Third season. Third season, yeah. And then in, in June, we had the ICEC report, mm. which was pretty damning around discrimination in cricket and racism. How does that play out for you? Did you, and, and how do you address it? How do you even consider the, how do you, how does it get tabled as an agenda item within the business? Yes, yeah, so kind of, I, I guess I go back to the very first meeting that we had with the hundred team and the England Cricket Board, which was they identified that they needed to appeal to a broader cross section of the population in the country, and therefore, one of the reasons was to then go into city teams rather than county look for a younger more diverse audience because they appreciated that the current state of cricket wasn't necessarily approachable for those walks of life so that was their original kind of reason for being so to speak now then they get a massive bump in the road right when all of a sudden you get that report coming through for us, it highlighted absolutely the reason why we needed to continue with 
working with England Cricket Board on the 100 to get the right groups of people into a sport that they also love or could potentially love. So the conversation was very much, okay, the report is the report. There are some real learning and actions that we're going to have to put in place. And one of those is around the 100 to make it more accessible to people. I guess from, you would argue from a brand perspective, maybe there was a distinction between some of the county teams and then some of the 100 teams. Yes, they were kind of affiliated with certain grounds and other teams in terms of players, etc. But they were trying to make a very distinct difference between county cricket and then the 100. So, yes, it was an agenda item, but it reinforced the need to continue to do the right thing. And that's also not just about getting traditional cricket into being fit for future, but also leveraging the 100 to try and get as many people into the sport as possible and for them to feel that they can access cricket. In that, there are two things going on. One is, do people transfer the the values of the bad stuff onto the sponsor? And I would argue that that'd be hard to, I wouldn't blame KP Snacks for what was going on in cricket. But there is the other bit, which is your implicit endorsement of it. I guess is the bit that is the most contentious by just by being there and paying the fee. And this is a regime that you are supporting. Yeah, I mean, for me, it goes back to what I've just previously talked about. The, The money that we're putting into cricket goes to grassroots and it goes to addressing some of the things that have happened previously to make sure that they don't happen again. Because it's unacceptable. It's just unacceptable. But when you end up talking to people within the England Cricket Board and the 100 team, they were absolutely focused on doing the right thing and changing so they could become a force for good. And that's where, given that they're a non-for-profit, that's where, for us making sure that the money is going into the right places to invest in grassroots, to invest in deprived areas, to give people the opportunity to have access versus we could have easily kind of put that money into county cricket or into supplying equipment for already organisations that are already set up. So... Yeah, for us, it was just a continuation of, no, we are doing the right thing. Stick with it, because what we're doing is supporting ultimately grassroots. And withdrawing from that would only mean that those that need it most were not going to benefit anymore. So there wasn't ever a conversation of, right, we need to punish this behaviour by withdrawing it from the relationship. Because it goes back to what was the brief for the England Cricket Board at the very beginning of this. And therefore it was going, right, we are absolutely steadfast on making sure that the money goes to the right places, so to those groups that need it most.
It sounds like you're so invested in the kind of the the purpose of the hundred that there was no wavering because you knew that the hundred was set up, you know, precisely to to counter the all of the effects that the the report highlighted. Exactly that. One of the how's it going in terms of results and what are the key metrics and how's it working for your distribution? Yes, yeah, so it's going really well from a metrics perspective, brand awareness measures are up you can see an uptick post the event across all of the uh, the brands so the the good thing is we've got a number of brands some of which are affiliated to the 100 and some of which aren't and we can actually see the difference in terms of the uptick of the brands that are featured interestingly those brands that are featured on the teams that are more successful and go further in the tournament we're seeing actually a spike there so you immediately get to see the exposure and what that's doing on awareness. When it comes to distribution, the good thing is we're pretty well distributed as a business anyway, but what we track is depth of distribution, i.e. are more of our brands distributed, and that's allowed us, particularly in the impulse singles market, to do that. So the activation that we've done around the impulse wholesale channel which ultimately services the independent shops that you see on the high street we've seen increased distribution and rate of sale as a result of that activity and then as we've started to activate in main store grocery we've also seen an increase in share when we've been activating our brands within that so yeah it's been hugely successful for us, both in terms of those mental and physical availability metrics that I've been talking about earlier. I think what works particularly well for us is when we connect things through the line. So what I mean by that for the non-marketeers that are listening is activating what we call above the line. So in advertising, the logos on shirts, the idents that are on the brake bumpers on either side of the programme, all the way then through to when you walk into a shop, you make a connection between the brand, the hundred. So that's that's doing really well. In addition to that, this year is how we've then investing in communities. So within each of the cities, putting those pitches in place to help with communities and actually getting regional PR off the back of that has also helped us because you can do so only so much nationally, but we also want to make sure that our regional plans are, uh, are strong. So that's where it's worked really, really well this year, connecting all of those bits. So there's a kind of common thread between brand awareness at that moment of truth of people going in and they're, they're faced with a broad selection of uh, stacks to buy and then making that connection and then doing the right thing as a responsible uh, manufacturer. You mentioned about seeing the uptick on the brands on the, the teams that were performing better as outperforming, if you like, as a brand level, other teams. Is that, and you suggested that was related to exposure, but it, it, have you gone into what's causing that? Because obviously there may, there will be more exposure but there's also a different sentiment around those teams, isn't there? I don't, I don't know yet about the different sentiment of the teams because we're still to do a bit of an evaluation on this year. 
but certainly what you can see, so take year one, when uh, Southern Brave did really well, we saw a really good uptick in uh, awareness for Pombe. Yeah. So that was encouraging. This year, what we've started to see is because Oval Invincibles are doing really well. KP as a brand is getting a really good uptick. So yeah, I, it, it might be. It's not something that we look at personally. I still need to talk to the 100 team about it. So it could be. But certainly we're seeing the more minutes the team are ex have exposure through a number of different things we are noticing that there is an increase in awareness relative to the other brands. And the other point that I was going to pick up on was around the, you know, you link the, obviously building community pitches is the right thing to do. It's uh, aligned with your partnership with 100 and it's taking cricket into new areas, etc. But a few minutes ago, you linked it quite correctly to brand exposure and it's also fulfilling a brand role, which you would, you know, which needs to be filled. Um, can I ask how, in what place kind of that's valued in terms of your brand metrics and, and whether, for example, citizenship is considered a brand driver for KP Snacks or is that, you know, what is the role of citizenship for the brand? Is it What do you mean by citizenship? Its, well, I mean, I'm, community engagement, for oh, okay. example, you know, you're you're, the fact that you are putting, what's it doing for the brand and how do you kind of describe what it's doing for the brand? It's a difficult metric to kind of get hold of and we don't measure that. But I think for us, how would we measure that? I think against the programme that we're putting in place for communities in terms of giving people access to pitches to play, the metrics that we will measure and can measure through some of the tracking actually that the ECB have in place is how many more people actively get involved at a local level. So are people booking the pitches? How often are they being used? Because that, to use your term in terms of citizenship or community engagement, that's what we want to do with that particular activation. It's not, I'll be honest with you, it's not about directly selling more product or trying to win share against our competitive set. It's about doing the right thing because I think businesses increasingly have a responsibility of investing in communities. And that's one of the key reasons why we wanted to get involved in the event versus, say, putting a badge on something that maybe isn't wanting to do that. I mean, we're 48 minutes in and we haven't mentioned obesity or that question. And I'm just wondering about when I come to this subject, it's, I know it's complex and I know that, that your job, there is a whole bit of it which people don't often see which is the sort of the game between governments legislations and where sport and sponsorship fits into that I'd be, i'm just interested in your view of it i mean we've there's that cadbury's case study mm. that we all refer back to of buy 100 chocolate bars and get a football type of thing yeah, yeah look you know, richard i would be disappointed if you didn't mention it the i'm, I'm here to please indeed the for us i go back to 
doing things responsibly. Now, what does that ultimately therefore mean? From pretty much day two of signing the contract, we were very clear on what we should do and shouldn't do. So uh, a couple of examples. We said that we would not sample our products at the events. So, you know, if you have a choice at that moment in time to go, wow, there could be half a million people going through these grounds. Why don't we just sample our products? Get the brand in hand of half a million people. We said we wouldn't do that. It's not the right thing to do. The second thing that we did very, very quickly was say that we were not going to put the logos on the youth shirts. So all of the youth kit does not have any of our logos on, on those kits. That was the second thing that we said we would not do. Anything that was specific at bringing children under 16 years of age into cricket, we would support, but we would not have our logos on any of the uh, material around it. That could, so for example, you'll see um, some of the players will just wear a hundred jersey um, or they might have a training top that doesn't have the logo. So those were really important for us about doing the right thing. The second thing is government legislation. There is government legislation out there now on what is defined as being high fat, salt and sugar. So for those in the industry, HFSS. We have done a huge amount to uh, reformulate and innovate our products to ensure that we meet some of those government guidelines. So the majority of the brands that we have associated with the 100 either today have either the entire brand within the regulations of what is deemed high fat, salt and sugar, or have something available to consumers to buy that are uh, compliant from a high fat, salt and sugar perspective. And therefore, again, going back to doing the right thing, we believe that we have got the right things in place. Ultimately, everything is about moderation. None of the in-store activation is about, please buy more to get more. So that Cadbury's example, brilliant example. We, are, we also said we will not do that. We will not say buy 15 packs to get a signed cricket bat. Buying a pack allows you to put money into, or we will make a contribution to providing cricket pitches, which then talks about the calories out and getting people involved through active lifestyle in a, a game that I certainly love. I used to play cricket, football, etc., all the time because things were available. There were pitches down the road. So that's why we wanted we wanted to do it. I think I would then without without kind of name dropping, but I will. Lord Cow, for example, talks about without some of these sponsorships, a lot of these games would be dead. They're non for profit. Mm. And therefore, without some investment, there wouldn't be 
the kind of availability out there for people to get involved and therefore it needs that investment but you're right it's a, a fine line but what we want to do is make sure we're doing the right thing we want to talk to adults about what we're doing and they are the primary purchaser of our products and then where there is certain exposure potential exposure to children we've pulled back so the sampling and the the logos on the youth jerseys there's a, it's interesting I, i've just come off the back of yesterday i i did a turn at um, two circles summit i only mentioned this because it just sprung to my mind one of the things that they were talking they were talking about fan origination why people like the sports they do why they follow the sports that they do and they had a stat which was to do with avidity and the age of 14 and the research you know that they've done comes back that the sports that we fell in love with when we were 14 or you know by the age mm. of 14 those are set and it feels true and i'm just wondering about in terms of our buying habits of snacks snacks is an interesting category first of all i love them and secondly i'm i think i'm eating the same snacks as i was when i was 14 essentially the brands have endured and whatever and there used to be, we used to talk about naughty snacks, that we should be punished for having snacks. And a lot of your language and a lot of language around Coca-Cola and other brands is happiness, repositioning them as, as treats rather than something that we should be, you know, the guilty snack, the guilty secret. All of that, I, there's, a, there's a, a bit in it, isn't there? It's, it's not about sport, but it is, it's in, the, in that area. Yeah, it was... For me, there's a, a few things that I kind of go back to. We've, we have as a business a marketing code and we're very clear on what we will and won't do. And one of those goes back to we will not actively talk or buy media, etc., for way over indexes against under 16s. In fact, I would go a little bit further and we'd probably kind of go, actually, let's do under 18 to be kind of really clear about it so the kind of there isn't that gray area the other one then is about reformulation so we've done a huge amount of work over a third of our products that are available now meet those guidelines so that i was referencing around high fat salt and sugar so again we're kind of making sure that there's choice there and then everything needs to be done through the context of kind of things in moderation and not encouraging overconsumption. That's what's really important, whilst also accepting that it is a stressful world out there and there are times where people just want to relax and unwind and have a drink with a snack, and that's okay, but, you know, don't overdo it. And therefore, we need to make sure we're doing the right thing. Absolutely, the government need to make sure that they're, uh, doing the right thing and then we rely on society culture education etc to also uh, ensure that the relationship is right with the things that people are eating and drinking I think we've only just scratched the surface in terms of partnerships so we're certainly thinking about okay how can we complement this to help in terms of our portfolio so Whilst there's nothing to share right now, we're in a number of kind of early stage conversations with various kind of event or team holders 
Kevin, that's the that's that's not going to stop. That's not going to stop those phone calls. No, I know, but at least I hope now that they can start to think about how they can maybe tailor their approach a little bit more effectively. So rather than me just look at it and either put it in an inbox for the Friday or just delete it, hopefully it will be a, a bit more suited to and an understanding of what we're trying to do, what they're trying to do and how how that potentially kind of works together. Got just There's another question, which is about, just to finish us off, is about the 100 itself. Because mm. obviously it's in the news all day, every day mm. about its, you know, its future as a property. You've got a new regime at the ECB in who, you know, previously didn't like it and now they, they're, they're in charge of it. Do you have a voice in that debate or is that just something that will rumble on? Yesterday in the paper, we're going to change the names of the town. We're going to make them football clubs. It might all be paper noise. It might all be just county cricket is full of rumour. It's a rumour mill of people who the hundred is almost like a culture war at the centre of it. It's become this thing which makes it exciting to be around. But I just wonder what your view of that. That is. It does make it exciting to be around. The more that people talk about it, I'm never going to deny that as an opportunity because it makes people more kind of curious that maybe they go, oh, maybe next year we'll go and watch the 100 and see what all this fuss is about. I think as people have started, as, as people that have were originally sceptical about the 100, I think what I'm certainly noticing is maybe more and more of those who were either neutral or negative towards it are becoming more positive. I'm certainly seeing more kind of county gear, whether that's county logos on hats or on T-shirts or whatever, mm. start to kind of become curious and go to games and, and see some of their favourite players play for certain teams. I think there is there's less noise around it. There's certainly more noise around, okay, what's the future of cricket now, given that this property exists and is doing pretty well. So I think there's a kind of a debate going on about the future of cricket and how can all of these different events coexist. And, you know, I think the ECB are also figuring out from a calendar perspective how that's all going to going to work. But it certainly brought in far more people who were not, engaged in cricket at all really so that must be a good thing and we're starting to see the participation numbers at a young age come into it which is great so the ECB have got some very clear targets and they're hitting those targets in terms of participation so that's also great so yeah and I think to your point I think the rest of it is probably just noise I think it's, it's, uh, as you're talking there, I was thinking, actually, there are a load of, you know, as you said, there are a load of sports out there, a load of sports properties. The 100, I think, is one of the most interesting that they've done to the game, you know, itself, but also the conversation around it. So I think, you know, from a sponsor's point of view, I'm guessing that's actually great news, you know, just in terms of people are talking about exactly. it. And that's, exactly. That's a big bit of it. There are a lot of sports out there would love to be talked about, you know, as much. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. The, the noise around it will only mean that next year people or more people will be curious, want to see what all the noise is about and will start to engage more, which ultimately is what both the ECB, the 100 team and ourselves are wanting to do. So for me... It, 
it's great that the debate's uh, going on, but ultimately, deep down, what are we trying to achieve? We're trying to just get more people actively involved in a game that this country absolutely loves. And I think it's a great example of actually a commercial marketing success story of you have a slightly dying older group of people. I don't mean dying in the people. I mean the dying as in yeah. the sport itself. <laughs> Um, but with an older demographic and you naturally would start if you were a business around how do you reinvent yourself and I think the England Cricket Board have done a fantastic job as you say there's a new regime in place I think now they've got actively involved in it I think they're seeing it for what it is which is you look around the stadiums the stadiums are full the stadiums have a different demographic to the ones that you see for traditional red ball so england cricket county cricket and the numbers speak for themselves in terms of the audience that are watching it on the bbc and sky i think 15 16 million people watched it this year that's phenomenal absolutely mm, phenomenal yeah. i mean those numbers you're hard pressed in terms of uh tv audiences nowadays i remember what eastenders maybe got 15 million, 25, 30 years ago. That's phenomenal numbers. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good place to stop. And we're very kind, very conscious of your time. Listen, Kevin, that was fascinating. Thank yeah, you. I really very enjoyed much. it. Thank really, you. Really, uh, yeah. really enjoyed it. And uh, Sean, as ever, thank, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Kevin. That was, that was fantastic. Really interesting. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad.